Victorian Perspectives on Religion and Science. It was John Ruskin who famously said, If only the geologists would let me alone, I could do very well. But those dreadful hammers, I hear the clink of them at the end of every cadence of Bible verses. As I noted last time, a series of advances in biology, geology, astronomy, and archaeology revealed that the Earth was far older than had been previously imagined, millions or even billions of years old, and for some Victorians this led to a crisis of faith, a tension between religion and science. In fact, we only begin to see the word scientist and the notion of science as a professional pursuit in the 1840s. Prior to that, science was largely the province of amateurs, and this was considered to be a good thing. It was believed before that that amateur scientists had no conflict of interest. They were disinterested in the language of the day. At the same time that we see an explosion of exploration of science, there was also a considerable movement toward faith. The Anglican clergyman William Paley had proposed the watchmaker analogy, the idea that the mechanism of the universe must have had a creator, just as the existence of a watch requires a watchmaker. Paley referred to this as the argument from design, and it is an early form of the concept of intelligent design that has been debated in our own time. But science pressed forward as well. Charles Lyell's Principles of Geology, 1830-1833, argued that geological processes worked gradually over vast expanses of time. In this sense, Lyell's work was a kind of forerunner of the evolutionary theory that had been developing over much of the previous century and was ultimately codified in Charles Darwin's The Origin of Species in 1859 and The Descent of Man in 1871. And as also previously mentioned, the biblical criticism from Germany, referred to as the higher criticism, was a movement that involved analysis of the Bible as a text, subjecting it to historical, geological, archaeological, and textual analysis. Yet, I would also point out that at the same time that religious faith was being contested by scientific theory and development, there was also a great deal of interest in religious reform in the so-called high church and low church movements. There was a vibrant evangelical movement that sought to make Christianity appeal more to the masses by discarding the liturgical formalities and ornamentation that were associated with Roman Catholicism. But there was also the Oxford movement that sought a bridge between Catholicism and Protestantism that culminated in the conversion of one of its proponents, John Henry Newman, to Catholicism. So the clash of contraries that Blake envisioned seems to be a characteristic of the Victorian era in both its clash between science and religion and even opposing forces within the Church of England itself. One of the best examples of the higher criticism was the work of David Friedrich Strauss, whose The Life of Jesus Critically Examined 
was translated from the German by Mary Ann Evans, better known as George Eliot, the novelist of Middlemarch fame, among others. Strauss stresses the humanity of Christ and explores the historical inconsistencies of the biblical accounts, such as differing gospel versions of the same events. According to his logic, if two accounts disagree, then at least one of them must be false. The other could be true, but if one is false, both could be false. He's not arguing that both accounts are false, but that one of them must be if they disagree. But the important conclusion from his reasoning is that scripture is not perfect. He does provide a disclaimer, though it did little to quiet the outcry that developed in response to his analysis. Strauss says, quote, At all events, the author of this work wishes especially to guard himself in those places where he declares he knows not what happened from the imputation of asserting that he knows that nothing happened, end quote. Strauss did not set out to attack Christianity, but his work was one more example of the kind of research that opened the door to criticism of the literal biblical accounts. Arthur Hugh Clough was one of a number of critics who challenged Strauss's work, usually doing so through satire. A good example of this is Clough's 1847 poem, Epistraussium, which goes, Matthew and Mark and Luke and Holy John evanished all and gone. Yea, he that erst his dusky curtains quitting, through eastern pictured panes his level beams transmitting, with gorgeous portraits blent, on them his glorious intercepted spent, southwestering now, through windows plainly glassed, on the inside face his radiance keen hath cast, and in the luster lost, invisible and gone. Are, say you, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and Holy John, lost, is it lost to be recovered never? However, the place of worship, the meantime with light, is, if less richly, more sincerely bright, and in blue skies the orb is manifest to sight. End quote. Clough's satiric denunciation of Strauss's The Life of Jesus Critically Examined is essentially saying that the skepticism doesn't really matter when he says the place of worship, the meantime with light, is, if less richly, more sincerely bright. He is suggesting that there is more sincerity in those that remain in the faith. Another of Clough's satiric works is the latest Decalogue, where Decalogue means the Ten Commandments. Here is Clough's cynical version. Thou shalt have one God only. Who would be at the expense of two? No graven images may be worshipped except the currency. Swear not at all. For, for thy curse, thine enemy is none the worse. At church on Sunday to attend will serve to keep the world thy friend. Honor thy parents, that is all from whom advancement may befall. Thou shalt not kill, but needst not strive officiously to keep alive. Do not adultery commit, advantage rarely comes of it. Thou shalt not steal an empty feat when it's so lucrative to cheat. Bear not false witness, let the lie have time on its own wings to fly. 
Thou shalt not covet, but tradition approves all forms of competition. The sum of all is, thou shalt love, if anybody, God above, at any rate, shall never labor more than thyself to love thy neighbor, end quote. Perhaps the best way to sum up this crisis of faith in the Victorian era is to read Matthew Arnold's poem, Dover Beach, one of the essential Victorian poems. The sea is calm tonight. The tide is full. The moon lies fair upon the straits. On the French coast, the light gleams and is gone. The cliffs of England stand glimmering and vast out in the tranquil bay. Come to the window. Sweet is the night air. Only from the long line of spray where the sea meets the moon-blanched land, listen. You hear the grating roar of pebbles which the waves draw back and fling at their return up the high strand. Begin and cease and then again begin with tremulous cadence slow and bring the eternal note of sadness in. Sophocles long ago heard it on the Aegean, and it brought into his mind the turbid ebb and flow of human misery. We find also in the sound a thought, hearing it by this distant northern sea. The sea of faith was once too at the full, and round earth's shore lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled. But now I only hear its melancholy, long-withdrawing roar retreating to the breath of the night wind down the vast edges drear and naked shingles of the world. Ah, love, let us be true to one another, for the world which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams, so various, so beautiful, so new, hath really neither joy, nor love, nor light, nor certitude, nor peace, nor help for pain, and we are here as on a darkling plain, swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night. End quote. The reason that I said this is one of the essential Victorian poems is because it really articulates the crisis of faith that is one of the hallmarks of this era. The speaker of the poem is listening to the grating roar of the pebbles washing back and forth in the ocean waves on Dover Beach in the moonlight. When the speaker refers to the pebbles which the waves draw back and fling at their return, up the high strand, begin and cease, and then again begin with tremulous cadence slow and bring the eternal note of sadness in, there is a sense of pointlessness that seems to suggest the myth of Sisyphus, who was condemned to push a large stone up a hill, only to have it roll back down when he reached the top, requiring him to start over again for all eternity. The line, the eternal note of sadness, also reminds one of Wordsworth's Tintern Abbey and his line about the still sad music. Of humanity, because Arnold connects this ebb and flow of the tide with the turbid ebb and flow of human misery. 
Arnold is most explicit in his first stanza that reads, The sea of faith was once too at the full, and round earth's shore lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled, but now I only hear its melancholy, long, withdrawing roar, retreating to the breath of the night wind, end quote. He sees the sea of faith as being like a tide that has been at its high mark and is now retreating. In the last part of the poem that begins, Ah, love, let us be true to one another, for the world which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams, so various, so beautiful, so new, hath really neither joy, nor love, nor light, nor certitude, nor peace, nor help for pain. Arnold is arguing here for love as being all that we have left. The world seems promising, but in fact there is no certainty, no joy, no relief. And we are like armies wandering blindly in the dark, confused by conflicting messages. Therefore, let us cling to love. No other poem so effectively captures the spirit of this crisis of faith as Matthew Arnold's Dover Beach.